Greetings and salutations. I'm Vlad Tenev, CEO and co-founder of Robinhood, and this is Under the Hood. I think we're aging out of a transition right now, and I'm optimistic about that. People will look up and see role models of all shapes and sizes, be really good with money, men, women, different diversities, ethnicities, et cetera, but we're not there. And so the intervention that has to happen right now is education. In this episode, we're speaking with Alexa Von Tobel, founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, and also the founder of LearnVest. While she was working at Morgan Stanley, Alexa realized that she didn't feel confident in her own financial literacy, and that there was very little out there to help educate women in particular on finance. Inspired to change this, Alexa came up with the idea for LearnVest, a financial planning platform with the goal of helping everyone make progress on their money. In this interview, we speak about the resilience it takes to build a company and the importance of empowering everyone, regardless of gender or age, to build their own financial future. Very excited to welcome Alexa on board. Alexa, good to see you again. I had the pleasure of being on your podcast, which I believe originally aired on January 28th of this year, which was a very, very challenging day for Robin Hood. I appreciate you returning the favor and coming on my podcast as well. I'm thrilled to be here. And I think you and I have so many things in common. I'm genuinely just excited to continue our conversation for our love of fintech. Yeah. Well, take me to the beginning. So you grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. Is that right? Yeah, I was born in Kentucky. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and then I have two older brothers. I always joke my whole life, I think my brothers like trained me to become a good entrepreneur because my whole life was just trying to keep up with them. One's eight years older than me, and one's about yeah. four years older than me. I think I've always been an entrepreneur, Vlad, to be honest, from like my early days. I didn't know to call it entrepreneurship, and as we both know, this startup world that we're both part of has just exploded in the last 20 years, but I love to build things. I mean, literally, I was like... A, a fort kid. I was building forts all the time. I was building small little businesses. And I think it was probably by the time I got to Harvard that it started to like crystallize in my own head that I was like, wow, I'm an entrepreneur. That's what this like restless energy of loving to solve problems and build is. Where do you think it came from? You mentioned your brothers. Were they entrepreneurs? Did they have the lemonade stand and the shed selling tools to neighbors and mowing lawns or... Were your parents business people as well? Yeah, so my family was really entrepreneurial. My dad's dad started kind of the precursor to Home Depot, a series of lumber yards, literally called the Von Tobel Lumber Yards, and was credited with like helping literally stand up Las Vegas. My dad was a pediatrician, my mom, a pediatric nurse practitioner. My dad was really entrepreneurial. He ran his own practice and was like an early developer researcher in autism. And in its own nature, pretty entrepreneurial at being cutting edge in terms of the science around special needs children. My dad had passed away when I was in my teens. And I think that also probably has elements that help you in entrepreneurship because just being really resilient is kind of core to, I think, who I've had to develop into as a grown up. And then my eldest brother runs his own practice. My middle brother is also really entrepreneurial. Everybody in my family came from the medical world. And I think that that actually has a pretty important lens into who I've developed, which is kind of this deep value system of God gives you talents and your job is to go use them to make the world a better place and do important work. I know we all like to work hard and we believe giving back and using our work to do good things is an important mission. Very cool. And then tell me when was it that you became interested in finances? That's kind of been a through line 
since you were pretty young, right? Yeah, the like most honest answer to this is when I was younger, my dad had passed away. And I remember overnight, my mom became a single mom with three kids. And she had to start managing our finances. And that was something my dad had always done. And I just remember really, really viscerally, intimately thinking to myself, I just want to be really good at personal finance when I grow up, just because I always want that to be something that I don't have to worry about or think about. And, I, and then I went to Harvard and I remember graduating and getting all these great jobs on Wall Street and thinking to myself, I can't believe that no one has taught me a single class on personal finance, yet here I am in finance, now an adult, supposed to be managing my own budget. And I was just like, the world has not prepared me at all. And because of kind of my roots and my own personal backstory, I said, this, this is ridiculous. And so in 2007, I founded LearnVest, which had a really simple early mission and it was kind of pre-fintechs even existing, which was let's go help young people manage their wallet in a way that can be really powerful and it should be affordable and transparent and no nonsense and it should be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it should help young people figure out how not to mess up their wallets so that they yeah. can be in a position to be able to manage them. And so the idea was really personal. It came from kind of my own life story, but then also out of my own need. And we always joked that I was client number one all the way through six years later when we sold it to Northwestern Mutual. When you were getting started with LearnVest, were you kind of always helping your friends manage their finances and kind of helping people informally? Yeah. I mean, first I was trying to figure out my own finances. How do I think about credit cards? How many should I have? How do I do 401ks versus my IRA? What's the decision there? And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I'm smart and capable. I'd gotten into business school and I just said to myself, this is crazy how many questions I have and that I'm Googling the internet. Or if I go call a financial planner, I'm not really like a great customer because I'm young. I don't have a lot of savings because I'm so young. And I sort of thought to myself, this has to change. Financial planning cannot be a luxury product. It should be something that's available to everybody, no matter how much money you have. And in fact, if you have less money, you actually need financial planning more because you can't afford to make any mistakes. So I started helping friends, but then I became a certified financial planner, wrote some New York Times bestselling book called Financially Fearless. And at that point, I like really just became a complete nerd for the topic. So yes, at this point, I've managed a lot of friends' finances. And I love it, Vlad. Like every day, amazing founders and entrepreneurs call me. And obviously, I now run a venture firm called Inspired Capital. But they call me and say, hey, do you mind giving me like some pointers, I really need some help on a big financial decision or when friends' companies go public. And I love helping people, especially in really intimate and important moments. So you mentioned you became a certified financial planner. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What is a certified financial planner and how does it differ from like a broker or an investment advisor? And what was it like to go through that process? Yeah. So um, typically they recommend you study for a year plus, maybe even two I was running LearnVest. I was about to get married to my husband. And I remember being like, I can't fit in one more thing, but I guess I have to. It's called the CFP exam. When I took it, it was 10 hours and two days long. And it's really about judgment because a lot of times it's not just the math. It's the math plus what else is really going on? What are people's intentions? And it's across everything. It's estate planning, tax planning, income, debt, insurance needs. It's everything. The CFP is kind of like the doctor of money. And typically, it's about a 30 plus percent pass rate. So you kind of take it knowing that it's unlikely for you to pass. So I just crammed, you know, nights and weekends, figured it out. I actually had to take it during Hurricane Sandy, which was 
(laughs) I literally studied with candles. It was terrible. But anyways, I ended up passing. And through it, I was also writing my first book, Financially Fearless. And then I wrote Financially Forward about kind of where our wallets are headed. And I think just the CFP is a really good designation. So everybody out there listening, if you're getting advice, I recommend that you get somebody that has a CFP. It's a higher quality of standards. There's a fiduciary standard. You have to stay educated every year for about 30 hours. So it's quite rigorous to maintain it as well. And it really means that you're up to speed on what's happening in the financial world and people's wallets. And when do you think someone should start taking their finances seriously? Is that something like as soon as you turn 18, as soon as you get your first job as a lifeguard, when is kind of the right time you think to start thinking about money? So I have children. They all have piggy banks. My six-year-old has like literally 10 piggy banks and we're starting early. However, statistically and from the data, when people begin to think about money more earnestly is when they actually have to pay their own bills. So it's post-college or if you're paying for your own bills in college, it's then, but it's whenever the money is in the bank account and as all you have and you have to make your own judgment decisions on it. And we find that specifically people turn a real corner post 25 we kind of found that the average age was late 20s, 27, 28, when another human relies on you. So that may mean you're engaged, you're moving in with somebody, you're having a baby, you just got married. But really when somebody else's financial well-being is depending on you is when people really pay attention. And so one of the things I obviously love about Robinhood and just the transformation that we've seen over the last decade is I think people are thinking about their wallets earlier, which is wonderful But as you know, it has to come with that education. It has to come with, uh, here's the framework of where you are in your wallet and what matters. And so in a perfect world, people are thinking about their finances when you're six, seven, eight, and you're getting your first allowance and you're building that behavior muscle because money at its core, as Vlad, you know, as well as I do, it's about habits. It's about creating really good, healthy habits. You have to deny yourself of things. You have to say no. What's retirement savings at its core? It's delayed gratification. That's it. You're saying I want to have an even nicer life in retirement and I'd like to be able to save for it. But so everybody should learn early. However, we find that late 20s is when the light really goes on and you really care. And ideally by then you're in a pretty good spot because you haven't made a bunch of mistakes. That's kind of the goal. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how little education actually happens around these things and how everyone just assumes you learn it from your parents or from your friends or you just figure it out otherwise. So I have my first job. I have a thousand dollars, you know, get my first paycheck. What should I do? What do you think people should think about if they're in that situation? I'm going to pretend I'm talking to my best friend, my own sibling or my own child. The way that I would financially plan for them is we call it the monopoly step. And as LearnVest was getting built, we started branding these financial steps more and more to make them really digestible for people. But the monopoly step is pretty simple and you have to be able to do three things before you can pass go and collect anything else. You have to have no credit card debt. I love Gen Z because they're more cautious about it and they're far more cautious than our generation was. But in general, the average American is carrying nine to $16,000 based on the way you want to cut the data of credit card debt. And that was pre-COVID. So those numbers probably aren't great. So no credit card debt, full emergency savings. And the big thing about emergency savings is that if you're young and single, you need three months. If you're older and higher earning and you're you know making, let's say you're late 20s and you're making over $100,000, you need nine months. And then once you're married with kids and a mortgage and all the responsibility, you really want nine to 12 months. So big emergency savings. And then the final bucket is you wanna be on track for retirement. 
meaning you're contributing to a 401k and or an IRA and ideally both, which is per person about $25,000 per year, which most people, Vlad, in this country don't have that money. So in short, we don't want you to do other things until you have no credit card debt, full emergency savings, and then finally you're contributing as much as you humanly can to retirement. And I think a lot of people think about investing and we always say, yes, yeah, start with investing in your retirement account. And then after that, go invest elsewhere. So that's the monopoly step. And what about paying your bills? Like the bills are presumably upfront before you even pay your credit card debt, right? That's right. You're like totally letting me nerd out with you on basics of financial planning. But Vlad, I think one of the things that's really hard for young people these days is like, what are my means? We live in an Instagram world where you see what everybody's doing and you just kind of are like, okay, my friends can afford to go here or do this or do that or have insert car, insert vacation to Tulum, whatever it may be. But to really understand what it means to live within your means, there's this thing called the 50-20-30 rule, which is let's just pretend, Vlad, for one second that your paycheck each month is $1,000, just to keep numbers yep. really simple. 50% or less should go to the essentials, literally the roof over your head, your grocery bill to pay for your utilities and how you get to and from work. 20% should go to the future, that's saving for retirement, that's saving you know, on Robinhood, that's investing all the things you wanna do. And then 30% or less is your lifestyle. It's the fun stuff. It's if you go to a concert or a sporting event or a friend's wedding or a travel or a trip or shopping. But so 50, 20, 30. 20% totally socked away for the future to save. 50% is your essential. So that's like how you live. And you can quickly get a sense if somebody's really not in a good spot with their wallet, if their rent or mortgage is more than 30 to 35% of what they take home. Yeah. One thing that I've been thinking a lot about is how interest rates play into this because interest rates can go up and down a lot. They've changed a decent bit in our lifetime, right? I think in the early 90s or so, interest rates were high single digit, right around 10%. Now, of course, they're right around zero where they've largely been since the financial crisis, give or take a couple of years in the mid 2010s. So do you think that that same model holds regardless of whether interest rates are zero or 10%? Or have you kind of thought about what a high or low interest rate does to change how you should be thinking about your money? Absolutely. Um, so just really quickly, credit card is right now about an average APR, annual percentage rate of negative 17%. Student loans, yeah. all based on how you took them, but they're high single digits. So anywhere from like call it seven to 10%. So that's negative. A car loan or mortgage, so let's take a mortgage, negative 3%. So that just shows you. And then savings yeah. is positive half a percent, right? It's nothing, basically. And then the stock market over the last 100 years on average is positive 11%. So on the debt side of the equation, we like to say avoid what we call bad debt. Bad debt is the really expensive. It's the negative 17% of credit cards. Or it's things like car loans that can end up being more expensive and there's not an asset. But in general, we want you to do as much as you can, again, after you have no credit card debt and emergency savings, of investing as much as possible because that positive 11% or more, and by the way, I'm not even getting into really great investing, right? I'm just talking yeah. stock market over 100 years. So if you're going to do it all over again in your 20s, don't amass debt because it's very expensive. And once you get it, it's really hard to get out of it. And then focus on putting every extra dollar away. And as you know, Vlad, better than anybody, the earlier you start, the faster it grows. That's the other great thing about compounding interest. It's not magic, it's math. 
And the sooner you start, the faster it grows. And to your point, if interest rates on the investing side exceed 11% return rates, that's incredibly powerful over the long term. So that's why you want to start investing in your 20s. Over the last 30 to 40 years, the ability to think differently about our wallet has evolved pretty rapidly. Our grandparents, both of ours, like did everything in cash. Credit cards didn't even really exist and the mortgage was one time your salary. We're now living in a world where there's so many really unique and more exotic things that you can begin to do that are becoming commonplace. The concern that you want to make sure is that people just understand that an emergency savings account is critical and no credit card debt because what happens if, God forbid, you lose your job overnight or some catastrophic issue happens? If you have a lot of credit card debt, what happens is you end up having to use all of your capital or it grows very, very quickly and then you end up going bankrupt. That's the big problem with credit card debt. And so just helping people really understand how to live within their means is it's just a really simple thing, but it's a hard thing because it's not taught. And what about crypto? Where do you bucket crypto? Is it in like retirement savings or more in the fun category of the vacation to Mexico? I love that you're asking me about this. In 2018, my second book, Financially Forward, came out where we really talked about the future of your wallet and where it's going to go and crypto and Bitcoin and everything. And I am very much a believer that cryptocurrencies and digital currencies are here to stay. It's just a matter of mass adoption. But right now, Vlad, 54 million Americans, roughly, give or take, are currently using crypto, which is pretty wild if you think about that. That's a big number. And so (laughs) back to the principles, certified financial planning is about preventing somebody from going literally bankrupt, having one bad thing happen at the wrong day, (laughs) and all of a sudden they're destitute. Um, because the financial world's pretty unforgiving. It takes seven years to get through a bankruptcy and reclear your credit score. I mean, it's really unforgiving. So in general, my answer in crypto is I am a believer in it. I tell people to tread really thoughtfully and cautiously and make sure that you have a financial plan before you just go and start buying a bunch of crypto. But I do believe that long-term crypto is going to become extremely commonplace. And I hope it does. I think there's a lot of benefits to it. I'm a huge believer in in safety first. You're basically saying safety first. Make sure you don't get into a really bad situation, which I'm all about. Okay, let me switch gears a little bit. We've talked a lot about financial planning, but I want to know about entrepreneurship as well. And you had a really interesting journey. You went to Harvard. I noticed that you joined a startup after Harvard. It was a uh, East Coast startup called Drop.io. Yes. So, you know, I graduated from college. I'd spent some time actually at Insight Venture Partners and then worked on the prop desk at Morgan Stanley. A dear friend had started Drop.io and I ended up going and that company actually got acquired by Facebook. I went back to Harvard Business School and then I dropped out in the fall of 2008 once Lehman Brothers went under to really go build LearnVest. And I was a sole founder. I was 24-ish years old and Built it for about six, seven-ish years and sold it on our fifth birthday of being live uh, to Northwestern Mutual. Yeah. There were a couple of moments throughout starting LearnVest that stuck out to me. You were on a ski vacation and the site crashed because so many people signed up. Walk (laughs) me through what was going on. I was skiing and we're at the top of the mountain and somebody had published a story about us and literally in a matter of hours, thousands of people were signing up to come use LearnVest. I mean, it was one of those in the movie type moments where the site literally goes down. I'm texting our CTO. I'm absolutely so stressed out. 
So I'm skiing down as fast as I can. And I was snowboarding at the time, actually. And um, I literally was trying to go so fast that I, of course, crashed and like almost gave myself a concussion. And by the time I get to the ground, we like figure out a plan, we triage it, we get the site back up. But we had had something crazy, like 10,000 plus people sign up in 12 to 24 hours. And that was kind of the beginning of LearnVest. We realized we'd hit some spigot where it was, FinTech didn't exist, Vlad, as you remember. We were kind of one of the first FinTech businesses. And we were saying, hey, let's just make money simple for young people. And anyways, really lucky I didn't get a terrible concussion, but I'll never forget it. Tell me how you raised your first investment. You raised from Excel Partners, I believe. How did that come about? Yep. So our first angel round, which at that time, it was kind of crazy. There wasn't really a bunch of angel funds. This is New York City, 2008. The markets were a mess. Worst recession in 81 years. So our angel round was the hardest round I'd ever raised. I put in all my savings. And I kept joking. I was like Cinderella who had to go back to the ball. If I couldn't stand up the company in nine months, I had to go back to business school and I had to get the show back on the road. And so that was really hard. That was a bunch of passionate people who believed in our mission, but it wasn't like angels. Today, God, you're an angel. Like everyone's an angel. There were no angels. And then after that, we ended up getting 50 plus thousand users in such a short period of time that we had eight term sheets. I mean, I remember being like, oh my goodness. And we ended up going with Excel Venture Partners. And then I always joked that like our final round, which was 35 plus million, that was like an hour. It took one hour. And it was like the seed round took seven months. I mean, it was brutal. Yeah. And I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. Like later rounds are much easier. Early rounds are really rough. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. The seed round for Robinhood, we raised seed funding over a period of two years. And I think I was doing a podcast a couple of years ago where someone asked me, how many people did you talk to? And I was like, oh, I don't know, 75, 80 people knocked on 80 doors. And then that became kind of the little tagline. Robinhood CEO had to talk to 80 people before raising his first million dollars or something like that. But yeah, it's it's interesting. It gets harder in some ways, but also easier as you make more progress. I remember looking at LearnVest because we saw actually a huge opportunity to make investing available for everyone. And as you know very well, Alexa, women have historically not been investing at the same rates as men. So we thought it was really interesting what you guys were doing. I'd love to actually talk a little bit about that. But let me first ask, selling LearnVest. So you sold it to Northwestern Mutual in 2015. And I'm sure that was a difficult decision, made doubly difficult by you having a, a baby, another baby, aside from LearnVest, at around the same time you were finalizing the deal. Walk us through what that was like. It was There's wild. Clearly a lot going on in your life in 2015. It was absolutely wild, lad. And by the way, you can't plan for this stuff. I remember that August, Forbes had put us on the cover, calling us like the millennial generation of the wallet. And then I found out I was having a baby, which was so exciting. And then North Bradford Mutual and a handful of other potential acquirers came around the table, really fell in love with the CEO of North Bradford Mutual. It's a 163-year-old company with the same value system as LearnVest, which was about really delivering financial stability to people. Long story short, it took four months, as you know very well. Exits don't happen over a day. Like, they take lots of periods of time. And we just raised a big round of capital, but we felt really like it was the right next step for the business to be able to give our software away to 5 million households. We got acquired on March 25th, which was a Wednesday. And I went into labor that weekend with my first child, my little girl, whose name is Toby. 
And you know what I learned through that process, Vlad, is that when like literally everything is happening at the same time, I'm a pretty high energy person. I just go into this very calm. I like learned yeah. I had a new gear and lots of founders who go through acquisitions will tell you they're always just brutal. You're triaging a lot. There's a lot of problems that pop up. You're just dealing with a lot of stress and pressure. And I think it actually just put it all into perspective because I was like, none of this matters. <laughs> We're creating a human at the end of this. That's what matters. But I always, I was able to joke a few times. I was like, literally, this has to be done before I have a child because that's priceless and I'm not going to be caught up in business once this really important moment's happening. So anyways, it was wonderful. The team was wonderful, but I got a full night of sleep, Vlad, and I woke up in labor and I was like, you're kidding me. Toby waited for you. I know. It was amazing. There was like a ton of fun stuff happening around it. What do you think the most challenging moment for you during the whole LearnVest experience was? You know what I think's hard? We created this really really committed team who deeply cared about everyday families, not super wealthy families, everyday families around their wallet and empowering them. And I think the hardest part I always joked was we didn't have a competitor. I didn't go to work every day feeling like I was going head to head with Schwab or Fidelity or even great sites out there, Wealthfront, Betterment. They were all doing early investing stuff. We were financial planning, holistic. And I always said the biggest competitor we had was honestly just apathy because we're so undereducated around the wallet, we kind of settle for just suboptimal decisions. And I kept being like, God, I wish we were selling shoes or something that people like wake up and walk down the street and say, oh, I want to go buy those. We were trying to make something that's really important, very, you know, accessible. And I think we were overcoming, I think, a lot of social stigmas. And so anyways, I always joked that was the hardest part. And then as you know very well, Running a company is both one of the most rewarding jobs on the planet, but it's also the only job that the better you are at it, the harder the job gets. Like being a CEO, the company only scales as much as you grow. And but I learned so much. I was definitely like a kid starting a company and learned so much about myself. So many things I had to get better at. There were so many humbling moments where I was just not good at doing something that I had to just say, okay, I suck at this. Let's find the right person who is good at this. And um, you eat a lot of humble pie through it and you either decide to lean into, I call it L-I-T-T-P, lean into the pain. You lean into the pain and get good at it or you literally just die trying. The company ejects you and like the company doesn't work. And so just the personal treadmill of always having to get better. And I think my husband is like the world's best partner. He was just absolutely amazing through it all and helping helping me juggle stress and all of that. But um, you get better, as you know, very well, Vlad. And I watched you, you get better each month. You get more stable, more calm, more capable of handling with the weird curveballs that you get thrown. Better at the TV interviews, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about women. So we mentioned earlier, men tend to invest at higher rates than women. You know, at Robinhood, about 30% of our customers are women. And there has been a lot of progress, but it seems like there's still more to do. What do you think we need to do more of? What can we do to get that to 50-50 or 60-40 in favor of women investing? I do think that we're going through this shift. By my children's generation, men and women will all work. Everyone will earn income. Kids will grow up not just seeing like dads work and moms stay at home. We're just changing our societal culture so much. And I think so much about money, and you said it at the beginning of this, you kind of learn through what your parents do. 
So if one person's working and managing it and the other person's not, you kind of see it as a, this is a girl or a guy thing or gendered. It's not gendered. And one of the things we always saw was confidence. Men and women were actually equally educated, meaning they're not because none of us learn about personal finance. But there was a confidence that men had around investing that women didn't have. I think we're aging out of a transition right now, and I'm optimistic about that. But over the next 15 years, as that societal shift happens where people will look up and see role models of all shapes and sizes, be really good with money, men, women, different diversities, ethnicities, et cetera. But we're not there. And so the intervention that has to happen right now is education. And that is one of those things that is, again, really critical to help people understand where they are. Yeah. Anecdotally, you know, one of the things I've been really surprised by is with the recent interest in crypto, a lot of that has been coming from women. I've met so many women that are discovering crypto and telling their friends about it. So I'm also wondering if there's a a lot of potential for crypto to kind of equalize the playing field further there. You know what, Vlad, I think that's a really good point. And one of the great things about crypto is it's brand new and everybody's learning about it or relatively brand new. I think what you are doing with Robinhood is you're making the technology accessible to everybody to be able to start thinking about investing and it not being an afterthought or not being something that feels really impossible. Vlad, I remember so well when we started LearnBest, I kept saying, it is crazy to me that you can't open an investment account if you don't have $5,000. But that's just nuts because most people that are young don't have any money. And so it's subtly saying to you, this is not for you. You're not mature or ready. And as a result, you kind of say, okay, I'm not going to lean into that part of my wallet. And so just think how far we've come in those 10 years. You've been such a massive part of that. Oh, thank you. Let me just close with the question that I like to ask everyone. What does democratizing finance for all mean to you? It's moving in the wrong direction. And where we were at the point of 74% of the country live paycheck to paycheck, now 78% of the country. I think COVID has done a ton to make this an even more stressful time for many Americans. And so what it means to me is great tools and technology, like things that you built and everybody else. There's so many other great tools that have now existed because of the fintech revolution. Access to education And actually, really, this wake-up moment for everybody to recognize that their wallet should be working for them. That doesn't matter if you're low-income. That doesn't matter whatever type of job you have or where you live. But there are technologies and tools that can help you. And Vlad, I can't wait for a self-driving wallet where literally your wallet optimizes per hour per day. Um, I'm waiting for that app. Self-driving wallets. I like that. Yeah. So I think it matters more than it did years ago. I think some of the stats are moving in the wrong direction. And I think it really means young people like yourself and myself and others really saying, let's go build the tools that make it so that everybody can get access to this. Well, there you have it. Thank you, Alexa Von Tobel. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much, Vlad. You're the best. This has been an episode of Under the Hood. Under the Hood is produced by Sound Made Public. Original music by Eric Zeeler and Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Under the Hood on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be well. The opinions expressed are those of the guest speaker and not necessarily those of Robinhood or its affiliates. The podcast is provided for informational purposes and not a recommendation of any security or investment strategy. All investments involve risk, and loss of principal is possible. Robinhood is not affiliated with the guests or their companies. Robinhood Financial, LLC member SIPC, is a registered broker-dealer. 
Robinhood Securities, LLC, member SIPC, provides brokerage clearing services. Robinhood Crypto, LLC, provides cryptocurrency trading. All are subsidiaries of Robinhood Markets, Inc., which is also the distributor of this podcast.